Hello, and welcome to this episode of Forefront 360, where we'll take you all around the intersection of art and faith. I'm Richard Chrisman, one of the leaders of Forefront, and I am very pleased to announce my special guest today. Joining me is artist Misato Pang. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice being here. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, of course. Misa is a painter and a mixed media artist currently working in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, she was born and raised in Hong Kong to Japanese and Chinese parents and has until recently been working in New York. Her art offering a window to cultural events and her personal narrative as a first-generation immigrant, a Christian, and an American artist. She is currently hosting a virtual exhibition of her work through May 2nd of this year, 2021, entitled Breakdown, which I am very excited to hear more about. But... Uh, as is tradition here on Forefront 360, before we get into any of the meat of this conversation, um, we'll do our classic artist interview lightning round of questions. Is that okay with you, Misa? Yeah, of course. <laughs> awesome. So the lightning round is where we just ask a bunch of short questions with short answers just to help us to get to know each other a bit before we really dive into anything. Great. So I'm just going to fire some questions off of you here. So yep. what is your favorite month? So it used to be December, but now it's August because of my birthday. <laughs> okay. My birthday is also in August. Oh, awesome. What is your favorite place you've ever lived? Um, I'd have to say my hometown, Hakodate, which is in northern Japan. Awesome. If you could put one piece of original art in your home, regardless of its location or price, what would it be? So I think... After I gave it much thought, I had to narrow it down to like two, which is still not like what you're asking for, but I have to say it. It would be no, no, go. Guernica by Picasso um, and The Dance 2 by Matisse. Um, I think they would look really good side by side, but yeah, I would say it would have to be those two pieces. That's a great answer. If you had Thank both, you. <laughs> would you keep them in the same room? I would like to because I think it offers a parallel of the realities of the world. You could take it either way, like the joy of the abundance and, and the, you know, it's about perspective, but both those pers both perspectives are valid, I think. And also they're so well done, well ex executed. Yeah. Um, so I would have to say those two pieces would really sing with each other. Wow, what a great answer. <laughs> I'm glad we answered that question. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Okay, another one. What uh, musician or singer-songwriter do you listen to the most frequently? And if you can't, you know, land on one, what are what are a few? Yeah, I, I so I go through seasons, and I personally, I listen to a lot of J-pop, and recently, Canto Pop, which nobody knows what Canto Pop is. Essentially, it's pop, but in Cantonese um, okay. language. Um, but I would have to say, like, I always, always, always end up listening to a lot of Shane and Shane, um, and King's Kaleidoscope, um, they're, you know, both are Christian artists. And I think it's just beautifully sung and, you know, just masters. I feel like they're like the masters of, of like hymn songs and stuff like that. Um, yeah. as well as Gunger, I'm going through their old album called The Fall. Um, oh, yeah. very theatrical, very fitting to a time right now. Um, so mm -hmm. I've been listening to that, but I would say those three artists currently is kind of on my top that's awesome all right what here's a tough one ready what is the most beautiful thing you have ever seen i don't have an answer i re i wish i could say this one thing but i really don't I, I i don't think i have 
Yeah, I don't know. That, really that's don't fair. I think it's this the. Really I think hard. that is such an impossible question. I just thought you know it'd be worth <laughs> throwing out there to see what you got. That is fair though. And then, what's your favorite color? This is also a really tough question because I think. Well, I used to, you know, I used to love red a lot, but then like the more I paint, the more I realize like colors always exist in relation to others. Mm-hmm. So I realize like it's not so much about the color itself, but the the harmony or disharmony or whatever you call it. It's about the dynamic and, and a relationship. So I would have to say none, which is probably like a like a cheat answer, but <laughs> um, none. Or I would say rainbow. Okay. I think the, the, <laughs> none, none or all. Spectrums. None or all. <laughs> nice. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to just kind of start talking to you about um, your kind of process and your work a little bit. Um, Some of our listeners uh, may not be familiar with your work, even though we have um, put up a couple of your pieces recently on our socials, which has been super fun. Yeah. And there will be more to come, which I'm excited about. But um, so just to start for our listeners that are not familiar with uh, you or your work, would you be willing to just give a brief introduction to um, you as an artist and like your work thus far for our listeners? Sure. Um, So just a little bit about my background, which I think would be helpful um, to kind of establish the context for my work. I am born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, My mother's Japanese. My dad is Chinese. I was never really, you know, I've always been like an art kind of really, I really enjoy doodling and stuff, you know, cartoons and stuff like that. I was surrounded by anime growing up because my mother loves anime. And so Growing up, I've had like this affinity for, for just drawing. Um, and around 16 or 17, I moved to the United States to pursue an education outside of Hong Kong, um, just to have a better chance of getting to colleges when I returned to Hong Kong. Um, so I ended up in Florida, which, okay. you know, who goes to Florida? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Florida's kind of known for its, you know, just really, um, they're education. They're not known for their education. Right. Um, so um, being there and kind of having to learn from scratch. What What does it mean for me to be in a new new place where my identity has shifted and I, I'm right. required to kind of relearn everything? English is not my first language. Uh, my first language is Cantonese and then Japanese and then I would say English my third. Um, but mm. I would like to say I've mastered English just from the last 11 years of being here. Right. Um, so, you know, um, fast forward, I ended up in New York um, for an um, exchange program, which, you know, I ended up just kind of taking painting classes and that just opened new doors for me. Um, so that's kind of the brief introduction of how I got into the art. But in terms of my work, I think for a long time, like I've just always painted whatever came to my mind and, um, the first series of painting I've done was on, um, it's a cake series. So at the time, um, I was really interested in the manifestation of metaphysical beliefs that people carry in different cultures. And so I was trying to kind of reconcile this division in my own belief as a Christian. Um, I, came, I became a Christian when I came to the United States, which I think was also has a lot to do with the cultural, you know, kind of like Americans are Christians and 
Asians or Buddhists, you know, like that kind of cultural um, presuppositions or. Right, exactly. So um, I was trying to reconcile, like, what does it mean then for me to be both Chinese and Japanese, but also now Christian, which at the time I didn't identify myself as American. And so I created these series um, of paintings of cakes, which I thought was kind of an easy subject for people to kind of come towards and say, oh, why are they cakes? And um, I was really interested in kind of tying this universal belief around like celebrations about birthdays and cakes are always kind of celebratory. And around the time, like people that are older have a very different attitude towards their birthdays, meaning they're aging and they're getting older and they're therefore closer to death or, or, you know, just the implications of death and also working as an after-school teacher with young kids that are just like, I am like, you know, one year or like five years and seven months. Like they're constantly counting because they're excited for the prospect of what it means to grow up and to get older. And so I see this kind of both a, a kind of a space in between of just excitement, but also like just this, this loss that people have. Um, yeah. So I, I, started kind of approaching painting as a way of creating imagery that could spark conversations. That's what it was for me. It's a platform for people to approach subjects that normally are tabooed or kind of avoided um, to make it more digestible and also aesthetically like pleasing to look at, Um, even though it's pretty grotesque and it's very um, visceral because of the content that it carries. Um, so that's kind of how I got started with painting. Um, so um, a lot of it is kind of on the cusp of reality and imagination, which I think was in my artist statement. It's just about things that are, feel real, but also aren't exactly real because you don't encounter those things in real life. But you know that when you look at it, it's familiar. So I yeah. think I'm really interested in um, drawing to that and, and saying like, okay, like what is it there that, you're so drawn to and what is it what what is it that's so intriguing and and wanting to kind of draw people closer to that space um where they could express or even feel things that normally they won't so that's that's a long way to say that's kind of yeah my work is thanks for sharing that i'm i'm still like digesting it that's so interesting <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm now I'm now thinking of cakes in like a completely different way. My uh, this morning, my wife was making uh, um, like a cream cheese frosting for a carrot cake for Easter, and now I'm thinking nice. like, oh, the implications of carrot. Cake oh no, on the celebration <laughs> of Easter. No, no, but that's uh, yeah, that's great. Cool. Um, so regarding the so so some of the background that you just gave, and then also. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the information that you sent uh, me previously, um, you've mm-hmm. self-described your work as uh, I'm quoting you here images mm-hmm. adopted from Asian rituals that are filtered through the lens of Western aesthetics. Can mm-hmm. you expand on that a little bit? And I know you kind of touched on it already, but yeah, for sure. Um, I think this is a statement that I actually wrote up for my thesis exhibition back in 2019 when I kind of had to pick something to talk about, you know, thesis exhibition is one of those things where you're like making a statement about your view on painting or even 
expressing your own identity. What does it mean for you to be a painter in relation to all these painters that came before you? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, around that time, I had just become an American citizen. Um, so I am naturalized, which I still find it weird to say naturalized. Like, what does it mean to be naturalized? You yeah, know, like, yeah. But that's, <laughs> that's a strange that's term weird. for it. It's very strange because it, it, it makes me feel like, was I not natural before? <laughs> like, yeah, right, right. What, what is it that's so inorganic about me being a resident alien or like, you know, foreigner in this country? Right. Um, so I think like I didn't realize the impact it had on me when I became a U.S. citizen because I didn't necessarily associate with the American values or American culture as much as I do with like, the relationship I've built and the opportunities I've gotten that allowed me to stay in, in New York or in the U.S. for as long as 10 years. Um, so I realized like that must have had an impact on the way I create work mm. because I did not receive an art education in Asia and all of my education was in the United States. So the painters I look at and the people I study under are all Westerners. And I, I just cannot really begin to dissect what does it mean for me as an Asian woman to study and to be so immersed in the Western aesthetics while having sentiments that are carried from my history and my origin. Sure. Um, so I think I partially I was grieving for just that lack of connection even though I, I was born and raised in Hong Kong for 17 years and I would consider myself native, um, there's still a part of me that felt like I missed out simply because I was still an outsider growing up in Hong Kong as half Japanese. Mm. So I never fully fit into either culture just because I was always kind of one foot out, one foot in situation. Yeah. Um, so I began painting a lot of events that, are familiar, but I never, I never fully identify with. So um, a lot of, you know, um, Chinese New Year um, dragon or lion dancing events, or even sumo wrestling. Um, so I began ab ab adopting those images um, that normally probably would have been painted in a different manner, just because of the Asian aesthetics. Uh, but instead, it was more or less kind of adapting this western aesthetics of you know fallism or even just mm -hmm. the way that the the paint is applied is very different so i think that's kind of where my statement comes from is like painting something in a manner of a different history of painting yeah um, so i think that's where i find myself existing is always in between i'm always in between places i'm always in between languages um mm. and it makes my work the way it is but i sometimes don't feel comfortable because i don't know who i am in the process of creating those images right yeah so i mean yeah is that sort of in between space something that you have grown or or, or are you kind of comfortable there most of the time or do you feel like there's like a constant dissonance in you trying to like, I don't know, like put a pin on, on who you are and where you are? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I would say there's always a dissonance um, that's marked by this longing 
Mm. I feel like painting is also almost like my way home. I'm, I'm searching for home by creating all these images and it's a way to vent because it's like, where do I place this? Where do I, it, you know, where do I go? Where can I be? Um, yeah. I'm constantly running away from something to somewhere. And there's always a destination that I'm longing for, but the older I get, I realize that place is never a destination. It's always kind of, it's not static. It's always changing and it's always evolving. And so, um, I think that's a really good question because I feel like my work has always, I, I didn't realize this until recently that there's always a, an undertone of just how much I feel displaced. So mm. kind of that diaspora of, of not really knowing and always feeling like an exile almost. And I, I think that's yeah. kind of, that's a sentiment that a lot of Christians could relate to because of, what what's established in the Bible is like we're we're exiles um, right. on this earth and we're foreigners, and I think that's comforting when mm -hmm. I know that that's that feeling is not necessarily brought about by my upbringing, but perhaps it's something way deeper. Perhaps that's something way more um, foundational and and universal. Um, yeah, as just wanting to have the comfort um, that cannot be found mm. in this world or anywhere else um, on this planet in this time. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting place to exist in. And, and I don't always feel good, but I think it gives me the advantage to not be so attached to things that are not constant, to things that. that are fleeing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. The, I we do a lot of of thinking here at Forefront around the idea of kind of what what some people call like the the there but not yet. Like we are we are foreigners right. in this in this world, and we're looking for something. Uh, you know, we're all longing for a home, and the idea that right. the creative act, you know, for a lot of people. Uh, and we're kind of working through this ourselves, but like the idea that like by creating, we are in some way participating with that, that ultimate home, you know, like in that, mm -hmm. in that by being creative and, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, we haven't put a, you know, tied a bow around that yet either. We're figuring, we're figuring it out. Yeah. It might be a lifelong endeavor too, you know, I'm sure. Um, just, and I think creativity is in itself is, is a safe space to process, mm -hmm. which is why I think I've been painting for, and I haven't given up painting, you know, it must, there must be some values in just the act of doing that and the act of questioning and the act of wrestling with, you know, not only with your, your craft, but with issues and questions of the world that you carry yeah. um, individually or collectively. So, yeah, I think there's value in taking your time to kind of just figure out what exactly it is. You may never figure out, but I think there's, it's worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, let me ask Yeah. So you mentioned um, in some of like your influences, you mentioned like fauvism and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I see when looking at your work, I see some like abstract expressionist influences perhaps mm -hmm. as well. What, um, 
painters or maybe schools of painting do you feel like influence your work the most? Yeah. You know, like when you're in grad school, you're kind of bombarded with all these schools. <laughs> yeah. Painters and I honestly feel like they all influence me in one way or another, but I think the people that influenced me the most are the people that kind of express an intensity of their experience. Mm. Um and you see it um, visually, how they execute that. And I think people that do that well are, you know, Matisse, um, Bakunin, and also Max Beckman. Those three are like mm. kind of my heroes. And of course, there are like many more that I look at and have benefited just by, you know, transcribing their work or even just it, kind of just sitting there and being immersed in that dialogue. But I would say those three people have kind of offered the value of just different spectrum of expression. Um, Matisse yeah. is really good with his colors and um, really rich. And, you know, I wanted his painting in my home, so I must really like him. And I, yeah, I've yeah. always liked him. Um, his simplicity is so, it, it doesn't feel naive. Like the simplicity of his forms feel like, it's it's gone through many multiple iterations of just drawing from life or even just observation that he's purified his forms so mm -hmm. it feels pure it's not naive um but there's a quality that it's so it's like this unadulterated joy that i could feel from his work that makes me really happy um and i i hope i could do the same except you know I'm always carrying this heaviness that I think inev inevitably affects the way I apply my paint or even arrive at certain images. Um, but, you know, he's one of my favorite painters, um, but also like outsider art. Um, I really like outsider art because of how it's just straightforward. It, it feels like they, they have their own way of arriving at an image that isn't, necessarily formulaic and I really like that um so those are just like a few examples that I could think of off of my head um I'm sure that list would change or even grow yeah um, of course yeah yeah that's great once I uh took a trip with some friends to New York City simply to go to the MoMA to see Matisse's The Red Studio oh yeah yeah because great we we were reading a play, uh, which is actually about Mark Rothko, but it, it part of the uh, drama was that Rothko had this long monologue about how he would sit in front of Matisse's The Red Studio for like eight hours a Great. day just to be inspired. What? And we were like, we yeah. have to go see it. <laughs> so, so what was your reaction after seeing it? The Red is very different than... Like when you look at like Google the painting, you know, and you look at Google images, you'll see multiple different shades of red oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, of yeah. the way that the image is uploaded. Um, right. And even like on the MoMA website, I remember the red or, you know, the red looking a certain way. But then right. when we saw it in person, I remember feeling that the I mean, this sounds kind of macabre, but I remember the the red looking like a like a fresh blood red, hmm. which is not what I anticipated and and the yeah. and i remember feeling that it was all the colors involved were much more lively than mm. it, it came across on like a digital screen and yeah. then also the fact that the piece is fairly uh alone 
in in the space that it's in in the moment yeah, yeah. is um so interesting to I've always been interested in museum curation and like mm. which pieces they decide to put kind of on like a solo wall mm. as opposed to pieces that kind of correspond with each other and are close together on a wall and yeah. the the red studio was was alone and that mm. I remember thinking like this is so interesting like you know not not being nearly as as trained in visual art you know or or art history even um I, I was I remember being struck by like what is it about this piece where when they hung this they were like it has to be by itself right you know, and, and that that's really interesting to me but yeah yeah I think curation is like uh that's this extra layer of storytelling who mm -hmm. knows why um but I, I do remember that being a very powerful experience myself as well I think that that's one of my favorite paintings at the time when I first learned about Matisse but you know he had a retrospect at MoMA, I think back in 20, 2000, and it must have been 2014. Mm. Um, and I was just so moved by his um, paper cutouts that was yeah. like all pasted on the wall. So you walk down this, almost like this aquarium. It felt like an aquarium or it felt like some kind of, you're just surrounded by art that's like, you know, kind of welling up over you. Um, and it was a powerful experience for sure. Yeah. But yeah. And and what what a guy. Like when he got to I remember reading that when he was too old uh, or frail to hold a paintbrush, he yeah. cut, you know, construction paper with scissors. Like you know, For he sure. just couldn't stop. You know, that's Yeah. That's so inspiring. But yeah. Yeah. For sure. Let let's kind of uh take a jump here before I still want to get to talk about breakdown um soon sure. here because I'm just really excited about that. But before we get to that let me ask you the so some of your past exhibitions and your pieces in talking about that you have explored the boundary between reality and imagination. So mm -hmm. what do you see as the boundary there? Like where 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 should we uh, or specifically maybe we as as Christians or people of faith um, like where mm -hmm. where should our boundary be? Do you think between things that are real and things that are imagined? Yeah, I think that's a very pointed question, right? Because I think, and it's a really great question. I actually sat down and thought about it. Hmm, like, what, what is it? You know, how do you even articulate that? Because I think right. as humans, this, this capability to, you know, merge those two things are like one of the most wonderful gifts we have. It's, I don't think dogs or cats can <laughs> imagine and, and then like kind of live out the imagination or vice versa, like to kind of, instill that reality into the imagination and, and in some way perfecting it or even make it remotely more interesting. Um, so I, I actually had, I felt like this question was really challenging and I, I took some time to think about it. And I think like, you know, it's, it's tricky for me to use the term reality and imagination here in describing Christian faith, because I think sure. a lot of those who don't identify with Christian faith might even describe Christians as living in imagination and not in reality, which right. I'm sure you've come across people like that. They're like, Oh, just stop with your thing. My dad mm -hmm. is like, stop reading the Bible. It's not real. Like stop. You need to stop. It's a cult, you know, yeah. which I find it really funny because for me, it's actually the realest thing I've ever encountered. And therefore like it's, it's giving me a very stark contrast to the way I see my reality. Um, so I think it's for me to parallel this sentiment 
of reality and imagination would be to talk about it in terms of objectivity and empathy. Um, the objective, the objectivity being like God's truth in the Bible, um, shaping our perception of reality and empathy being our ability to shift our framework to something other than our own experience. Mm. And so when I use those terms, I think I'm more comfortable in commenting on like, okay, would people of faith need more reality or imagination? Or maybe we should say, well, I think that depends. You know, I know some people that are very like, so this is the truth. This is what it is. But I see that there's a lack of emotional connection. Mm. And I would say, well, why don't you go back and read about all these biblical characters with empathy and yeah. see where exactly the gospel kind of um, fits in or slips into those pockets where we've missed a point, you know, we've yes. missed it. Um, so I think like, yeah, I, I, I found that boundary to be very gray. And I think that's mm-hmm. the, the challenge of even relating to people um, that are Christians or non-Christian. It's like, when do you know to be objective? When do you know to be empathetic? Um, and without dismissing other people's reality, which is also like a huge can of worm, like how do you bring in, um, to you, what seems objective or what is objective as reality may not be reality to other people. They might see it purely as imagination. And I think like it's, everybody has their own work to do. Uh, for me, like I needed a lot of, um, I need a both. I think I tend to get very, I tend to get swept up by the emotion of like, this sucks. Like this must not be true if I feel this way, which Mm. we would talk about it in breakdown because I think that captured a lot of that sentiment of like, why is it so hard to keep faith? Mm. But, but there is objective truth that is strong enough to kind of encapsulate even moments of doubt that kind of overcome ourselves. And I think, you know, when I start, when I start re- um, reading the Bible with empathy and really inserting myself into all those characters, reading about Jonah who ran away from mm-hmm. God's calling, um, about David who actually, you know, had gone through so much um, and was so faithful over the course of his early years and then later, like, you know, committing murder and mm-hmm. all these people you know, have lived through their own version of kind of that wrestling between objectivity and also like maybe you would say imagination, but I would say, I would say empathy or even that, that heartfelt connection with God. And I think like, yeah, maybe that's, that's a long answer, but I think it's, it's a hard thing to know. And I think that requires a tremendous amount of wisdom to know exactly when to do what, and it's okay if we don't. I think that's that's kind of where I am right now. It's like, well, what do I do? I don't know. Um, yeah. in, in the middle of COVID, you know, the world is a mess. Um, mm-hmm. Do we need more reality? Do we need more imagination? I feel like, I don't know. Yeah. It's a hard question. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the that marriage of the idea of empathy and and imagination too. just the fact that like, Mm -hmm. there are so many, I mean, the, there's a paradox, I guess, in in Christianity where we, Mm -hmm. we 
at the surface level, we think of, you know, when I talk to people about Christian belief, whether they're Christians or not, that there's kind of a surface level approach where Christianity revolves around objective, like immutable truths. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is true. This is how it is. But when you Mm -hmm. actually, like you said, when you actually read through the Bible, you know, particularly in the, in the, the old Testament, like with these patriarchs and Kings and judges and all that, Mm -hmm. there's so, there's so much gray, you know, Mm -hmm. and and there's, there's so many figures that if you were talking to, you know, contemporary Christians today and you were telling a story about a a figure, you know, and who Mm -hmm. is David or Joseph or, you know, Gideon or, or these biblical characters, we would say, well, like that person, God wouldn't use that person, you know, and, and there's just so much, you know, and so I think that in, in some ways it's kind of intimidating, but in other ways it's really freeing Mm. and comforting to know that, that God uh, has joyfully used very uh, confused and, and lost and, and (laughs) people throughout the whole story. Yeah. I think, I think one thing I'm learning it's it's really hard is that what's what is a given to me is not a given to God. Meaning like mm-hmm. the presets or the defaults that I'm starting with within my framework is so different mm-hmm. and so much smaller. And it's very humbling to then which is also very traumatizing, I think, to overthrow that system of belief. Mm-hmm. Um also we could talk more about that in um when we get to the breakdown um synopsis, but it's, it's endless, you know, and you know, yeah, I think I'll just leave it at that. Let's actually (laughs) go there. Let's, uh, let's jump in a breakdown. So, um, so you have an exhibition that's running right now as, uh, we're, we're recording here in, in early April. So we got, uh, about, well, actually like kind of exactly a month left. Exactly a month. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, would you just share with our listeners about um, about Breakdown, your current show, and a little bit about what that is? Yeah, for sure. So Breakdown itself, it's pretty self-explanatory. I had a mental breakdown, but also from the past year, um, Breakdown is um, a two-part exhibition um, that kind of kind of expresses different creative phases that I've gone through in the past year that kind of coincides with my own, I wouldn't say breakdown, but my own kind of dissecting and analysis of where I stand in relation to God. And of course, like that is incomplete because it's coming from me, but I think it's, it's a really important exhibition for me because I think the rawness and the honesty that comes out of that exhibition is needed for people to understand my work um, as an artist. Um, so I could just talk briefly about what the part one, part two looks like. So part one um, would be an exhibition that has a recording or has a soundtrack that is composed of voice notes, audio recordings, and also video converted sounds um, during my time in Hong Kong in the past year since COVID. And so there's a lot of kind of textures within the sounds, you know, like sound textures and, and content that kind of overlaps with each other. And there's an interviewing interweaving of hope and lament uh, as a very important part of the story, because I think it en- encapsulates like faith and season 
it there's so much nuance to someone crying out but hoping at the same time someone giving up but also holding on and I think it, it almost feels like a psalm it's it's almost like a prayer that nobody hears about and this happened in quiet corners and even at the at the verge of despair sometimes because it was a lonely time that I felt abandoned um, mm. not only by the world but by God that I I love um, who and I know he loves me, but it's, it's, there's this kind of inability to find connection because I am so finite, mm -hmm. but the, the longings and the pain feels cosmic. And I think there's this tension of like, where do I fit all these things? Where do I kind of, where do I pour these kind of groanings into? And I think creating the soundtrack was very therapeutic for me to realize, wow, this is really hard, but this is also beautiful. You know, Yeah. it's, it's, it's a weird space. Um, so there's a soundtrack that's pretty important for part one and the images that accompany um, that would mostly be monochromatic, black and white, almost gloomy images. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the part one would be more or less kind of in that raw space of just unfiltered, this is, everything that I am, this is everything that I contain within my body kind of exhibition. And part two would be a little more colorful. Um, there will be a lot more um, images that are kind of came out of just me thinking about the biblical characters and mm -hmm. really trying to find myself in those moments that had happened before, you know, um, just trying to see myself um, as existing in a much bigger story and therefore looking at or reading the Bible and looking at all these characters that had gone through slip-ups or what feels like irredeemable mistakes yeah. and um, learning to stand when my knees feel weak, um, when my strength doesn't allow me to hope. It, it feels like my strength has failed me and I, I ha I'm a very strong-willed person and feeling my will had taken out been taken away feels really humiliating for, for some reason. It, it felt like, why is this happening to me? Like, I can't believe it. And so there's a little bit of shame around that. It's like, why can't I will myself to believe? Why can't I will myself to do what is right? So right. the whole thing about objectivity, why can't I align myself with objectivity and I think that's when empathy comes in. And I have to say like, well, but look at all these people. They didn't get it down. Like they weren't enabled by strength. They were enabled by grace yeah. to live even faithlessly. And so, yeah, me working in the part two images were kind of a way to heal. It's, it's a way to heal from what was kind of expressed in part one. And I'm still going through that. So it, this is not very far removed from me. I'm always swimming between part one and part two. Yeah. And, but inviting people into that space, I think it's very sacred and very intimate. And I want people to have the permission to feel and the permission to know that like, this is normal. This is okay. Um, but we first have to allow ourselves in those spaces um, for there to be real growth and even I would say sanctification, um, which to me feels so far from me. Um, but I believe it. 
And, and I think a lot of the times working towards sanctification, working towards holiness or the pursuit of, of truth is not so much about working, but resting. Yeah. And that's, and it's so uncomfortable. It's such an uncomfortable concept to be like, how do I be patient when I'm slipping up or how do I become, yeah, it's, it's hard, right? Like I, it's, I feel like it's a huge can of worm, but I just need to like kind of tie the knot there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. can I, can I just stop for a second and say like, yeah. I, you are like everything that you're saying and everything that you, you are working through, this is like why I'm not even kidding you. Like this is why Forefront Festival exists. Like the reason mm-hmm. why uh, me and my friends here are, are doing what we do is because we're trying to work through in ourselves and also like equip and, and uh, in, encourage others to do exactly yeah. what you're doing. And it's, so it's incredibly encouraging to me, like everything that you are, are talking about is just, you know, hitting a perfect chord on my heart because it's, Aww. these are the things, no, I'm serious. I mean, these are the things that we care about. And, and I'm just so glad to see that, uh, you know, I, like you said, like by, like by grace, I mean, God is, is working through uh, people out there like yourself. And I think that so many people, you know, and I'll stop myself from waxing here, but like so many people experience some level of breakdown over the past, mm. you know, year or so. And there yeah. are so many people that, um, you know, not saying that everyone has to be an artist or a creative or something, but like the, um, the fact that you are able to kind of grapple with and and work through and and lament and hope and rebuild and all these things using your your creativity um and your you know imago dei uh image of god abilities you know is so is wonderful and i i feel like many people you know are almost having like a second level of breakdown because mm. we we have we have the first you know the wave of of I don't know if you want to use the word trauma or whatever from, from COVID and, and political unrest and all sorts of other things that have happened right. over the past year. And then we have this, like, how, what do we do with all of these feelings? What do we do with these yeah. new questions, with these yearnings and whatever? And um, it's just so awesome to see how that is being worked out in your work. Super right. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. So my my favorite piece in the part one is um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Could you just tell me the story in particular behind that piece? Yeah. Um, so there's actually the title is kind of trick. Um, I kind of play with the title a little bit. Um, so the full title would be seven. There will be a mm-hmm. number seven. Yeah. And then the scripture. And then at the end, it'll be 21. So 721 is actually July 21st. Okay. Um, I can't really, I don't remember exactly what happened in July 21st in Hong Kong. It must have been, I think it was the day when um, national security law went in effect and there's some sort of crackdown on um, freedom of speech. Hmm. And what happened was people were banned from 
um, expressing any sort of sentiments that has anything to do with democracy or even um, freedom or human rights or, or, you know, just anything that alludes to um, a betrayal of the Chinese government. Right. They are prohibited. And so um, people began raising white pieces of paper that has no slogan. And in fact, the slogans themselves had started to morph into just geometric shapes. Mm. So Cantonese characters are really interesting because they are blocky, but they're also very kind of picturesque. They're, mm-hmm. um, so they, in a way, like you're able to kind of create, you can hint at those characters by using um, very simple shapes or arches or, you know, blocks and circles and stuff like that. And so people began kind of fragmenting languages um, into symbols um, as well as removing all symbols and just kind of raising white pieces of paper Mm -hmm. as a way of protest. Um, And I find that kind of really powerful when people are protesting through imagination, through creativity, and yet the government still arrests those people because they know that the white pieces of paper, while it's blank and it, it, there's an absence of, you know, content, it's way more powerful because now it's suggesting yeah. that, you know, you, that, that, that need, that civil resistance is now all in our brain. It's all yeah. in us. And I think that is such a powerful thing when I came across it at a time when, you know, I myself as an artist, it's like, this is all I have imagination mm-hmm. and creativity is my asset it's it's everything that we are as humans and feeling like that is a violation to the government and therefore a violation to our rights to live mm. or even survive um just felt i don't know it it, it was kind of shocking and so yeah. i decided to create a piece um with that title in mind and saying that like you can't take it away from us. Like mm-hmm. eventually, you know, good will reign. Uh, yeah. and, and that's a really, you know, it, it might, sometimes I look back and I, I felt like that was a very naive sentiment because there's no visible um, deliverance from that since mm-hmm. then. But I think what's really important about this piece is the color, the color choices. So black, yellow, and white is the dominant kind of um, force in that image. Um, the color within that painting symbolizes moral values, but also political affiliation. So black and white, you know, mm-hmm. good, evil, good, yeah. bad, but also like, you know, we it, black and white as in like truth and, and falsehood. And then yellow being the color for democracy in Hong Kong. Mm. And how do these colors interact? And they're all so strong as a color and just kind of trying to, capture light through color expressing light not only through the visual sense but also through kind of a spiritual sense like what the light in this world like where is the light and I think it was something I needed to hold on to for myself it's like I can't see the light right now but I know it's there and let me just make a piece about it so I can feel like I am actively rebelling or actively um holding on um by having a piece that really 
express that sentiment and truth um, for myself. So I think that's kind of, and I, I like, I, I find it interesting that people really like it because to me it was like, Oh, it's just, you know, yellow, black and white. Mm. It's not that many colors. Um, but it's a very special piece for me because it happened at a time when everything feels like it's taken away. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That I'm going to look at it completely differently now, of course. <laughs> That's awesome. How have you felt, uh, you know, in the fact that, that there's this tremendous um, upheaval and, and, and uh, attack on, you know, basic human rights, as you say, in, in Hong Kong. And then, so, you, you know, you've, you've lived in Hong Kong, you've been here in the States and now there's, you know, a certain degree of, uh, you know, unrest, you know, January 6th right. in, in the United States. And right. does, but, you know, t- 10 years ago, um, like when you first came to the States, I, I, at least in my memory, things were fairly stable, you know, <laughs> here, uh, at least it felt that way to me. But the, um, so like, how, how has it felt, I guess, that in, you know, most or all of the places that you've lived, there now is yeah. this con- like constant, you know, <laughs> tension, you know, between political yeah. and, and, and even moral uh, expectations? Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely something that's on my mind a lot. Um, also adding on top of that list, the current, you know, attack on Asian Americans. I of think course. it's like, where do I go? Um, right. I've definitely felt like my home was torn down um, by injustice. And with Hong Kong, it started in 2019, with first starting with the extradition bill, which means that Hong Kong people could be now judged under, could be sent back to China and, and judged under their legislative and judicial system, yeah. which you know, it's, it's starkly, starkly different from Hong Kong, which is a democratic um, country, or maybe we would even say city, because Hong Kong is still kind of figuring out its identity in relation right. to Britain and also China. Um, mm. So the, the presumption of guilt under the Chinese legislative system was a, a very terrifying aspect of what it means. And it was just the beginning of many. And now, fast forwarding two years, it's we could see the deterioration of just basic human rights. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's I, I never really cared about politics, to be honest. I, I it was not something I really wanted to dapple with because um, it's just a tricky thing. It's like depending on who you ask and where you are, your opinions could change. And I realized like politics is never kind of something that you could quite figure out or even it's so fluid exactly it's Mm -hmm. so fluid so um learning about hong kong and then returning in 2021 for a brief seven months and while being there with the national security law coming into effect and a lot of things have changed within a very short amount of time and seeing the blm and in in the united states (laughs) and like leaving Hong Kong to come back to the United States only then to be confronted with the insurrection and now the Asian attack. And, you know, none of these things are new. And I know it's like shocking for some people, but it's like, I am aware. And especially if you're Christian, you should know 
of course. Not you, I'm not talking to you necessarily, but I'm kind of like talking to myself. Like I should know that mm. it would always be there. Yeah. But I think what's really disheartening is to have gone through a whole year of global pandemic when we've cost it, it, we've lost so much. And on top of it, we as a human race are so restless that we begin taking that out on other human beings um, and feeling entitled to things because we're, we're unhappy, you know, um, and just, it, it, it's really difficult to comment, but I, I just feel like there's nowhere for me to go. Um, and I still carry that every day and it's becoming harder and harder for me to know, like, where do I go? Um, and I feel like a huge part of myself was lost in the past couple years. Yeah. Um, a huge part of what constituted my identity and my joys and my comfort um, had been lost to injustice that is completely outside of my control. And having processed and prayed, it's also difficult to then think, oh, God has abandoned me. You know, like, it, so yeah. everything is turbulent, including my relationship with God because of all the things that are happening. And so, you know, to answer your question, it's like, I'm still in transition mm -hmm. and it might go on for a long time, but I think more than ever, I feel like a foreigner mm -hmm. everywhere I am. Mm -hmm. um, being in Hong Kong and knowing I have no right to express um, and then being in the United States and being scared because I look Asian right. and feeling like feeling hostility from yeah. everywhere because there's no way for me to gauge or tell whether, you know, someone would carry some sort of resentment or hatred towards me. Right. Um, yeah. I think it's a very open ended emotion that doesn't, it can, can't be concluded or it can't be necessarily um, contained. Um, so I'm still learning what it's like. Mm -hmm. And for the first time I, I realized like, this is, this is not removed from me. You yeah. know, racism is not so far removed. It's not a black and white thing. It's actually, it's actually everywhere. Yeah. Even when you go back to Asia, actually, they have discrimination against Asians that are not of their origin or, um, ethnicity. Um, it's really difficult mm. so i think it's it's a lot of breakdown yeah um so hopefully there'll be rebuilding the american church needs your voice and you know i think that a, a lot of people are uh have been living in a bubble for a very long time i think and i think that mm -hmm. the uh the we need to remember kind of as you said like as like the bible clearly uh tells us both in its history and in its prophecy that mm -hmm. you know humanity is not going to live in a stable prosperous space and then especially mm -hmm. us as christians like the you know things will if things have been you know if we have not experienced unrest or persecution or, or whatever for a long time, something is probably wrong, you know, because we have been, <laughs> you know, it, it's sad to say, but like that, that is what has been kind of slated for us. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I really appreciate your, your perspective and I'm really thankful for you coming on the show. Yeah. Thank um, you so much. Yeah. Could you remind uh, just for listeners, could you 
kind of tell tell people how they can experience your exhibition? Oh yeah, so I would recommend um, the listeners um, to put in their headphones if they listen to the soundtrack because of the way that it's composed, it feels more real and immersive mm. when you actually put in your headphones. And I would, if you want, you can go through the exhibition first and look at the works and go back to the soundtrack. They're all on the same page. Um, lyrics are available right beneath the soundtrack, um, the soundbar. Um, mm. So you could access different versions of the lyrics. They're available in Cantonese, um, English, and Japanese. So I recommend, I really highly recommend listening to the soundtrack. And then if you need the lyrics, you can look, the, look at the lyrics and then look at the show, um, the works. And you could click on each of them and look at the information. And if you scroll to the bottom, you can find the guest book. So I know that you've been here and I can thank you personally um, after the show is over. So I think it's pretty straightforward once you get onto the website. Yeah. And Forefront listeners, we will be uh, posting direct links and information um, on social and on our website after this uh, episode goes up. So you can click right through uh, that way. So uh, be sure to look out for that. Um, yeah, I'm so excited. I'm really excited to see part two. So the last thing I'll kind of ask, and then I uh, won't take too much of your time here, is uh, so you've shared that some of the proceeds of the show are going to the Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe to support mm-hmm. AAPI community organizations, uh, as you said, affected by this anti-Asian violence, you know, of, of late. Um, how can mm-hmm. viewers of your show uh, add to these proceeds? Yeah, so... Um... I think the way to do it is to actually, um, if you're interested in purchasing any of my pieces, I would have to do that. So it might be an honor system, but I could always send a receipt to the buyer, um, you know, of my pieces. And currently I'm planning to donate at least 30% of the proceeds to kind of like a GoFundMe that has a collection of different um, resources to AAPI organizations. Um, you don't need to buy my work to donate. Um, you mm-hmm. could definitely go to the link. If you click on to the, um, the disclaimer, there's a, there's a section that says all artworks are for sale and it goes to the stop Asian hate GoFundMe. And if you kind of hover your um, mouse over there, you are able to access the link and you could see all the um, organizations that are actually actively um, doing something in our community yeah, and yeah. you just, like donate. So you could do that on your own terms, but if you do decide to buy a piece of painting, I would be donating that as well. So awesome. And forefront, yep. if you're, if you listen to forefront, you've probably heard me talk about the uh, tremendous benefit to owning, you know, real art and hanging in your home. So, you know, definitely consider that there's a big difference between owning a print and owning, uh, oh, yeah. you know, putting in your house an actual painting that, you know, the artist created with their hands. So, um, yeah, get, get some, buy some pieces. But, yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> okay. Well, um, thank you so much, Misa. Thanks for talking with yeah, us today. Um, if you couldn't tell by this conversation, uh, Forefront Festival highly suggests you look into, uh, this, uh, show and just Misa's work as a whole. Um, definitely check out Breakdown before it closes on May 2nd. And as always, keep striving for excellent art and authentic faith. Until next time. <laughs>